Part two of Home is Where the Bear is is all about designing bears. We have got Shane and Ian from Future Mountain and we've got Adrian from Moondog. Future Mountain are, are pretty new, um, but they'll, uh, I guess, fairly ever run in on, on what they're up to. I'd assume a lot of people out there would know uh, Moondog. If you don't, they're, they're pretty notorious for their... Uh, esoteric sense of humour and esoteric bears as you'll hear soon when we ask um, you know the, the very first question I I ask is how do we design a bear and the question that Adrian gives immediately um, takes us down a path that I didn't anticipate if you didn't hear the first part of this jump uh, back a couple of episodes in the Ale of a Time feed and uh, yeah the first one was all about finding a brewery you can find me at Ale of a Time aleofadime.com uh, we'll have a new episode for the regular Ale of a Time coming up uh, next week as well. Uh, you can also check out Molly Rose, uh, mollyrosebrewing.com. Uh, Nick has, uh, I think, redesigned his website recently, and he's got a new Cornerstone program. Basically, it's kind of a subscription program or a supporters program for Molly Rose. So uh, 12 beers are delivered in three packages, um, which is six exclusive Cornerstone beers and six Molly Rose limited edition beers. You also get two really beautiful Cornerstone beer glasses, and you get a few other goodies. It's $300 um, plus plus shipping. Check it out. There's only 250 spots available for it. Uh, mollyrosebrewing.com slash cornerstone. For Ale of a Time, a big shout-out to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, we've I've started sort of rethinking how we put content up for them, uh, so I put up a new kind of a blog post for Patreon supporters only. Uh, if you haven't checked that out yet, uh, patreon.com slash ale of a time. Uh, it'd be cool for you to jump on board and give us some support. And we're really enjoying this series, so you know we, we want to be able to make more things like this happen. So uh, anyway, thanks to the guys for joining us for a chat, and hopefully you enjoy. Nick. Hi Luke. Welcome back. Good to see you again. Great to see you. We've got a posse with us today. Uh, what are we going to talk about? Uh, we're going to talk about making beer and recipe development. Cool. That sounds pretty nerdy. It's also the most fun part about making beer. Okay. And owning a brewery. Okay. Let's, um, let's start with our guests so people can find out who they are. I'll get you all to say your name first so everyone knows voices. We'll go with you, Adrian. Uh, I'm Adrian. I work at Moondog. I'm the lead innovation brewer or senior brewer, as I prefer to be called. Senior brewer? I like it. Is that on your email signature? It's not. I think I caved and put fucking lead innovation brewer in there. <laughs> you sold out. I did. I really did. Uh, Shane. Yeah. Uh, Shane from uh, Future Mountain Brewery, a uh, new setup brewery, uh, co-founder with a business partner, Ian. Uh, I'm Ian co-founder of Future Mountain uh, Brewing. Uh, yeah. Um, I, firstly, I, I don't think a lot of our listeners would know Future Mountain uh, because it doesn't really exist yet. Can you guys tell us a little bit about what it is? Uh, yep. So uh, Future Mountain Brewing and Blending, uh, it's basically a, a startup uh, taproom and brewery. 
Um, we've got a little uh, brew house uh, where we're sort of splitting between um, doing brews in uh, stainless tanks as well as a lot of uh, barrel-aged beers, barrel-fermented beers and things like that. Uh, we're also going to have a tap room. So it's sort of, l- sort of loosely based on the uh, brew pub business model, I guess. Uh, a tap room there, uh, there with a bar. Uh, it's for about 120 patrons uh, on Plenty Road in Reservoir. Cool. So we've sort of been in there for about four months now um, with the view of us opening sort of February, March uh, 2019. Every time I say it, it seems to be another month <laughs> further further on. You had a little hand action there as well, just like, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we learnt that from um, a couple of months ago when we first started and we get builders and other tradies in and stuff like that and they'd say oh so when are you planning on opening we're like oh before christmas and they just laughed and so we just realized that it seemed very unrealistic and then as we got further into it it's just that 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 goal of sort of opening the tap room to the public at least is something that uh i think we're becoming a little bit more realistic with so we say you know january february and now i'm starting to say march is creeping in so might be just in time for Easter, maybe next year. <laughs> That's so. a good a good time to do it. Yeah, Easter. yeah. What are your backgrounds? Uh, I worked. Uh, I f- my first brewing job was at Hargraves Hill, and then I worked at uh, Boat Rocker, and then a short stint at Temple bef- uh, while Ian and I were uh, setting up Future Mountain. Cool. Ian, what about you? Uh, I worked at Boat Rocker for two to three years, where I met Shane, and uh, I did a, I did about a ten month stint at uh, Hop Nation. That's where I know your face. Yes. Okay, we've met before. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that rings a bell now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. Adrian, probably not a lot of people know your background as well. You've been in the brewing world for quite a while. Uh, it feels like about 40-odd years, but it's nowhere near that long. And I certainly have 40 years of experience to show for it. Uh, I started off at Grand Ridge, um, more or less straight out of uni. Uh, I was there for 18 long months. Uh, moved up to Brisbane to work at a brewery which closed down approximately three weeks after I started, which was tremendous. It was a real character-building experience. Um, lived, uh, continued living in Brisbane um, for another year or so. Moved back and started working at Three Ravens. No, uh, sorry, started uh, back at Jamison, uh, living in Melbourne and commuting up there on a Monday morning and back on a Friday morning. Just to brew the beast and the raspberry wheat? More or less. Uh, also the, the dark wheat beer, which is a, a forgotten style, I think, because that beer was fucking sensational. Right, I don't even remember that one. Uh, I couldn't even tell you what it was called. I, I remember the label because the labels were outstanding at Jamison. Uh, and then after that, yeah, um, brewer at Three Ravens, got to head brewer, won some awards, left, went to Moondog and still at Moondog. Cool. And your job at Moondog now is uh, pretty much uh, doing the fun stuff. Yeah, doing the fun stuff. Uh, I don't have to make core beers, but I do have to come up with recipes a ridiculously uh, sorry with ridiculous frequency. Okay, that's good because we are talking about recipes. Yeah, we got the right man for the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You say that now. <laughs> Wait to hear the bullshit that comes out of my mouth. <laughs> So I guess this is a question for the table. So jump in when you, you feel, feel the need. How do you start with a, a beer recipe? What is the first thing? What are the first things you need to, to look at? I guess what I would look at is what am I looking to achieve? 
generally, if I'm doing a new recipe, there's an end concept in mind. So if that's uh, I'm trying to mimic a dessert or a cocktail or I've seen a fancy menu from some restaurant that I'll never be able to afford to go to and think, those look like fucking interesting flavours. How can I make that work on a brewing level? I'll start there. So I'll start with the, I guess, the, the special part of it. So uh, I've made a tequila barrel-aged Imperial Goes before and wanted to throw uh, caviar into it. So caviar was the end point. Tequila's in there as well. So for working back from that, caviar is kind of salty. So some sort of tequila-based beer makes sense because tequila, salt, whatever. The beer was shithouse in the end, by the way. I should just... <laughs> I like how I've asked this question and we've gone for a, the first beer that's come up as a tequila... Goes with it, it'll go downhill from here. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, what about if you're not making a ridiculous beer? Say if, say if Moondog wanted to make a, a new mid-strength... Um uh, I would look at the flavours that I would want to see in that beer. So for a mid-strength, um, you're somewhat constrained by the alcohol. So it can't have any one element that is way out of balance, in my opinion anyway. Can't be, t- uh, can't be ultra hoppy, can't be ultra malty. It needs to find a level because there's no alcohol there to back anything up. So yeast needs to be in check, malt needs to be in check, hops need to be in check. If you're going to throw fruit or anything else in there, that needs to also be balanced. Um, I don't know, I guess I, I would approach it from the point of view that everything in moderation, but probably everything turned up to 11. Mm. It's a moondog beer that, after all. Yeah, <laughs> that... I think you've hit on something that I think about as well. So I, I think about the end product and how I want to enjoy the beer and how I want other people to enjoy the beer. But then I think about uh, the balance. And I think with the mid-strength question, you've hit upon something that's my very first consideration is the alcohol strength. Uh, because it's something that takes a little while to figure out. But the higher alcohol you go, the more sweetness and the more body you get in a beer. So something that's 8% alcohol is a lot sweeter and thicker and heavier even though there's less residual sugar in that beer. It's not technically a sweet beer, but it tastes sweet. So yeah, alcohol is where I start um, after deciding the concept. And also too, uh, following on from that, it's um, for me envisaging sort of that, that final product in the glass. And for me, the first thing I think about is sort of palate weight. Like what you said, it's sort of like, is it a full bodied beer? alcohol strength comes into it is it a lean beer because a lot of the elements or a lot of the layers which you put on top of it is built around that whole you know palate weight and the the drinkability of it like are we talking about that it's you know 100 meals to be shared is it you know pints of it to sort of be drunk because from all of that it's then then that's how you sort of build you know residual sweetness in hand you know hand in hand with alcohol bitterness how to poke some of those flavors through how do you get fruit or other additions to sort of come through so they shine without necessarily over dominating because it's like that was something that I learned very quickly from a home brewing point of view is that once you start thinking of all of these different layers it's very it's very easy for it to quickly get out of hand and you've just got a mess. Yeah, you know? totally. And balance. It always comes back to balance. Do you all, or have you all homebrewed at some point? I would be probably yeah. one of the few people who hasn't homebrewed. Okay. I'm actually looking to get into homebrewing. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you some tips. I think well, that'd be well, awesome. <laughs> that, that was going to be my question. Like, 
as a homebrew, and I, I homebrewed, and it's probably something I fell into, was your first thought is, oh, great, I'm going to make a beer. Here is a ridiculous thing. And you end up with that kind of, you know, jagged beer that you're all talking about. Is that something that you guys all did? Everyone's S- nodding. Still <laughs> uh, do yeah, every time you work with a, a different ingredient. Like, you really run the risk, you know, unless you, you know, have yeah, the, that practice. Yeah. The beauty yeah. of the, the home uh, homebrewing is just that you... You gain so much experience in using all like so many different ingredients, and and uh, and you just can't be too precious just to put it down the drain and, and just and just take it as a learning experience. Mm. Um, Do you still homebrew? Uh, until about four months ago when we started this, because my homebrew system now is our keg washer. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk about sort of specific ingredients and and knowing how to use them. You know, you mentioned home like fruit. Um, Caviar. Did you actually use caviar, or was it the, the essence, the idea of caviar? We, uh, I tried throwing some caviar into the kettle, and it did just fuck all. Mm. So we wound up it's having an expensive it. experiment. You didn't want to start with salmon roe. We, for reasons only known to Moondog, we have a lot of caviar um, that was literally about to go out of date, and I mean within twelve hours. And like all best before dates, it's probably got fucking months to go, but there was some shit there. Threw it in the kettle, no taste whatsoever, came through. So when we served the beer three weeks later, somewhat past the best before date, we put it into the glasses and it just sank to the bottom and was just there as little shitty tasting, ultra expensive balls of fucking fish, eggs. There were some other issues with the beer. It wasn't maybe sour enough for my taste, so I did add some lactic acid directly to it which reacted with whatever the fuck else was in the beer and caused um, ethyl lactate, okay. which is an ester, which I haven't really encountered naturally before, but it basically tastes like a lolly python. So day one of service, beer was fucking great. Day two of service, Jesus Christ, shit has changed. Have you guys ever encountered this? Uh, what, what was it? Ethyl lactate. Ethyl lactate? No. It's basically yeah, ethanol no. added to uh, lactic acid. Yeah. I think usually you need some sort of heat to catalyze or promote the reaction. But this happened overnight in our cool room. Our cool room is not the coolest of cool rooms in the world, but <laughs> I certainly would not have expected this to occur. Uh, so, yeah, day two, it was like, this is like a lolly python. <laughs> and honestly, it was probably better than it was the day before. <laughs> but this is only 50 litres, so I <laughs> no one lost their jobs. I... Man, okay. Uh, <laughs> I like how, again, I thought it was going to be a simple question, how do you research an ingredient? And we got a eth- into ethyl lactate and caviar um, and lactic acid. So I can pull it back a step if you like. No, that's beautiful. <laughs> Man. Um, oh, I guess pull it back a step. So if, if, oh, let's go with Nick. If you're using fruit, how do you approach it? Don't talk oh, about caviar. No caviar. <laughs> okay, so going with fruit. If I want to make a fruit addition to a beer, I think about how I generally enjoy the fruit first and uh, w- w- whether it be cooked whether it be in conjunction with something else or on a hot day and then I want to get the flavor profile out of that best experience of that fruit and somehow get that to punch through the beer I also go about it the other way if I've got a beer that I want to add fruit to I find the fruit that perfectly matches that situation that I'd like with fruit addition, I've, I've done a lot of fruit additions at home, re-ferments with the uh, uh, sour beer, and uh, I found the first uh, 
uh, just using different fruits with different, you know, um, acid amount. Once I made a, a Fajoa beer uh, with a great base. I had a beautiful blonde base, um, perfect acid level, lovely. And then, and then you throw fruit onto it, and the, the acid just goes through the roof. So, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of, I kind of look at it and pick the right acid level for the fruit. Okay. Um, and I think that kind of comes down to experience, and, and I think after a while you kind of get, you kind of get a idea of how much acid it's gonna, it's gonna give. How do you measure acid? Uh, uh, pH, or, or, or you could do TA as well. So is that like um, I've heard pH strips that homebrewers use? Is that yeah, or just yep. a pH meter? Or, yeah. Okay, cool. If I can just build on the fruit addition thing. Um, if I'm not adding caveats over here, which doesn't happen once, uh, I, again, I would follow Nick's sort of example of do I want this fruit to be zingy and uh, at the front <laughs> and have it be uh, the forefront of the beer. So uh, passion fruit for me will always go in the fermenter because that maintains that level of acidity, the, the punch. Um, whereas watermelon I'll throw in the kettle because I'm not losing any of those higher notes by it being in the kettle and being pasteurised that way. And it's a much less of a pain in the ass to use. Mm. And that's something else too, is sort of um, something that I've found is that uh, when I've looked at wanting to add a, a certain flavour, whether it's a fruit, say oranges or something like that, for example, and you sort of, there are different process ways that you can treat and sort of add um, orange, you know, to the brew. And uh, that's, this is where home brewing has been really helpful because <coughs> I'll sort of do a brew and it's just not orangey enough so then i'll punch more oranges in and then sort of punch more and then you know sort of you have these realizations whether you know one day it's um whether you taste just like a mosaic ipa or whatever and you go wow that's orangey and i, I started really working on the, the whole idea of opposed to a single ingredient like an orange you think of the orange flavor spectrum and think about the complementary things and it's sort of like what you were saying adrian it's like you know, it's um, what I've been able to do before is that if you need a little top note of a flavour or whatever, you have the ability to maybe dry hop it or sort of add other, you know, other ingredients that can help sort of get you there where you sort of want that, where you want that flavour profile. Totally. So, uh, one of the yeah. best things I've, I've got recently is uh, a book called The Flavour Thesaurus, uh, written by a chef. Um, so it's obviously completely food based, but if you've got a, a character or a note or a, an ingredient that you want to expand on, I'd more or less look, the, look that ingredient up, flick through and be like, discard anything that's got meat in it to the best of my ability. And then be like, okay, cool. So uh, recently we did a blood orange and cran, uh, blood orange and raspberry beer for the old bar as a collab. Uh, I don't really love blood orange in a beer. I, th I think it gets a bit gummy. But you throw some raspberry in there, and it just lifts everything. You get both characters; they come they come through really nicely, and it's really complementary. Mm. So yeah, it's, I think a lot of it is combining different things to make what you're trying to achieve sing. Mm. So I think the the outcome of this is uh, think about the flavor you want, and then try a whole bunch of different techniques. Yeah. <laughs> just keep trying and trying and trying until you figure out exactly what. And don't be disheartened when they all fuck up. <laughs> like, so taste shit like, like a caviar beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also if like the caviar beer doesn't work, just keep making caviar <laughs> yeah. beers. But like you could do a caviar beer, I guess, for example, not using caviar but using, I don't know, something salty, oh, totally. something a little bit briny. I, I, I I'll never use caviar again. Okay. <laughs> so I guess in, in a, what you're saying, it doesn't have to be 
that ingredient to achieve that ingredient. No. You know, um, you've got yeast flavours and, you know, all manner of different ways. You know, certain malts can help accentuate, you know, flavours that it's it's all about that building of a flavour profile. Yeah. You know, yep. that sort of, yeah, can get you there. What about herbs? Because I, I think of like um, coriander seed. is such a common one. And I use coriander seed a lot in cooking. And I drink a lot of beers with coriander seed in it. I don't know if I've ever gone and tasted a beer and gone, oh, there's definitely coriander in there. I guess, what, how do you use herbs and how does that come across to, to you guys as brewers if you were to use that? So in a wet beer, it's not the bitter orange peel doesn't actually give you much orange flavour. Mm. It's the coriander that gives you all of the orange flavour. That's why you haven't picked, maybe haven't picked up coriander because in a beer, it comes through really orangey. Mm. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. Um, Everyone's nodding so furiously. Yeah, They're yeah. like, you all yeah. knew that, and I don't think it's the it's the quality of uh, coriander seed as well. Like you yeah. can get, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the the providence of it. Uh, yeah. Indian coriander seed is orangey as fuck. Chinese coriander, not so much. Oh, okay. There you go. Didn't know that one. Yeah. Thanks, Adrian. I remember, no, no. Uh, thank you, Brendan O'Sullivan. <laughs> I worked with um, uh, a brewer from uh, White Rabbit, and um, this is this is a few years ago, and and he he explained to me about um, coriander. And about the the whole situation where you get hot dog water, mm. and um, and I was I, I didn't I hadn't really experienced that in sort of wit beers before, and he was saying the different sorts of um, coriander, especially that you can get from supermarkets or whatever. So I did a few steeps, and sure enough, there are certain um, certain sorts of um, uh, supermarket available um, coriander that you steep it and it smells just like hot dog water. And now that's just the whole hot dog water anomaly thing that I just, I'm always looking for that. I think we might take a short break because that got pretty fucking interesting and I've got some follow-ups, but let's take a short break, top up some beers if we need it and come back. Uh, Nick, you've just poured the Aperol Spritz. Uh, Mr. West Aperol Spritz beer. Great shout out to Mr. West, who are good friends of ours. This is, I think, a pretty good example of some of the things we're talking about. Can you tell us about the beer? Yeah, sure can. So I collaborated with Mr. West because they're good friends. Um, they wanted to make a Aperol Spritz beer. Um, I knew I could make a really good orange beer, a sour orange beer, because uh, I've done that before. I knew how to get some pretty cracking orange flavour into a beer uh, and make a tart, sour, saison-y type beer. Um, and I knew that those guys were pretty good at cocktails. So we agreed that I would make the orange beer and they'd make a, a tincture um, imitating Aperol. So they did some rhubarb and they did some, some cinchona bark and a few other ingredients that you find in Aperol and cooked it all up and we put that into the beer um, just before we kegged it. So okay. that was, that was what that Shane was saying before is you can add different ingredients at, at different times. So I didn't want any of those things to ferment too hard. So put them r- right in at the very end so that all of the fresh tincture flavour would come through. What is a tincture for listeners that might not know? Oh, it's a, an extract of a botanical. Yeah, I guess that's... I don't actually know the def- dictionary definition. Sorry. Any, anyone want to feel a tincture? 
That's what I would have said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I refer to a tincture, it's usually something that I've um, chucked into like a vodka strength solution of ethanol mm. um, with a fairly neutral spirit background. Let's and they just for, pulls uh, out the flavours? Pulls out the flavours. Usually it pulls out the best and brightest flavours. Uh, I use it a lot for chilies. Um, sometimes it will pull out a lot of fat, which is not ideal. So cacao nibs, worst case scenario, but yeah. Wait, so cacao nibs have a lot of fat in them? A shitload. Okay. Oh, I guess yeah, that makes uh, sense. Yeah, yeah. absolute truckload. Do you, and, and the, the next question we had was trials how do you try all these things you know if someone like moondog where you're brewing to a pretty big scale but are you still doing 50 liter batches are you just having a shot and seeing what works it depends on the beer it depends on what we're trying to achieve with the end product um if it's something that i haven't really used before or i think is going to be a fucking pain in the ass to work with i'll do a 50 liter batch um most of the time, we're aiming for a flavour or a concept that is, I think, within our grasp to achieve. So we'll almost always just go to a big batch. For our monthly specialties uh, in particular, uh, for something that maybe comes out once or twice a year, we'll probably will defer back to a, a specialty, uh, sorry, to a, a pilot release uh, and then build it up from there. Mm. Or, and if the ingredient we're looking to add is fucking extremely expensive, we'll are build it up. Are you guys at Future Mountains running trials at the moment? Uh, yep, we're uh, we're doing kind of uh, uh, Bachi beer kind of every one to two weeks. and um, But we're doing a lot of splits because we're going to be quite a yeast-driven brewery. Um, so we're doing a lot of splits and kind of deciding on what um, yeast blend to use for a saison or... or, or for a wit or whatever and we need to make plenty of wit to just grow some cultures up for our barrels and stuff like that as well so we're kind of trying to trying to brew as much wit as we can but yeah do plenty of splits uh, that's what i did as a home brewer as well plenty of splits and you can get a lot more variety on your taps at home and um and you can just learn a lot more just a bit easier these guys are clearly so much more professional than i've ever been in my <laughs> life <laughs> I was going to say, sort of, <coughs> my um, two cents worth w uh, uh, with that is that, particularly if I'm working with ingredients that I haven't worked with before, I always err on the underside, knowing very well that the number of times that you can't you can add it more, you <laughs> exactly. can take it back it's, out. It, yeah. It's that old thing where sort of it's much easier just to, if you find that post fermentation that maybe that some of those uh, volatile flavours have sort of you know blown off um there's there's always a way to be able to then shoot some more flavor back yep. in and whether it is like a, a tincture uh a, a steep with de-aerated water um or just you know some sort of a direct addition into the fermenter um it's there's always a way that you can give it a little tickle all the way through to then even in packaging and you know worst case scenario or, or at least that last point being able to directly dose kegs and we've yep. done that before with great success you know how do you de-aerate water uh well previously we have boiled it and then sparged it with co2 um the sort of do you it, blast it with co2 in it uh with a sintered stone and it basically displaces it's it's one of the laws is it henry or robert or some someone's law that I learned in IBD a long time ago. Okay. Um, but yeah, you basically displace it. Uh, so it's uh, so then it 
replaces any any um, residual O2 in the water solution with uh, CO2 mm. and just blows it out. Doesn't the law of partial pressure then mean that O2 goes straight back in them? Oh, my God. <laughs> 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 I didn't study that module. <laughs> I learned how to get it out, but yeah, if it comes back in... Oh. It's not, not, not your job. Yeah. <laughs> the, you don't um, command physics. So you touched on something there. Beer isn't all about ridiculous ingredients because you... You know, you, you're tweaking a beer and you're, you're tickling a beer, as you said, to to create something great in the end. So we haven't really talked about base beers. Um, we've gone straight into fruit and caviar. <laughs> um, how do you, I guess, you know, th- does the base beer have to be good or can you get away with some fuck-ups if you're going to put some fruit in it, like a lot of people believe? I'm going to throw this out straight away, is that I find it interesting that there is this... Uh, misconception that if you have a beer that is ruined, you, that it's fucked up, that you can put it in a barrel and all's good. Fuck yeah, <laughs> totally. There's, it, it's, that, that, it's, that you, yeah. you can fix X amount of problems, you can't fix Y amount of problems with mm. barrel or additions or whatever. Yeah. So making a base beer then, um, and I, I look at recipes and as I said, I've homebrewed. Uh, you know, there's five percent, whatever, ten percent. This. Um, X grams of hops at this time. How much do those small percentages add up? You know, 5% of ingredient, say, if I was making a curry, is a tiny amount. Does that add up in a beer? I think it does. Um, I, I think that if I'm making, say, a barrel-aged beer or a, a beer with, uh, say, bread or whatever, I'm much more likely to go simple on the malt base because... That's just there to provide fermentables and potentially some complexity, but it's not going to be the focus of the final product. That's going to come from the barrel aging or the wild yeast or the fruit or whatever addition. Um, if I'm making a an English ale of modest strength, fuck yeah, I'll throw 40 different malts at that if I think it's going to be an improvement and... So not an improvement, but a addition of complexity because for an English ale, a mild, you've got three and a half percent, you've only got malt hops, yeast and water to fuck with and really, yeast is out because it's got to be English, it's got to provide those certain things, hops, they've got to be English, they can, they've got to provide those certain things and the water's got to provide those certain things. So really malt is your only parameter to really add that level of interest to. Um, but yeah, for barrel aged beers, I, I tend to go, go super basic for hops, malts, Yeast to a degree, depending on what I want to get out of the end of it. Uh, for me, it's all about the barrel aging. If there's wild yeast or bacteria or fruit, whatever. Yeah, I think uh, I think with the barrel aging, like um, generally, I think you can you can change a lot of things uh, depending if you know your culture well. Um, uh, IBUs for one, uh, try and control your uh, acid production, um, and then I, I we we have a barrel. Uh, kind of a punch in the cellar at the moment. So I'm trying to create uh, a variation in the cellar for blending. So you just try and focus on, and you do get a lot of hop character through um, uh, certain hops, for certain hops. Um, but I try and uh, just match them up on, on what I want. So so a lot of malt can accentuate. Uh, I, I think it comes down to, like, if you know your culture well and where it's going to go and try and push it in certain directions, um, because those kind of beers are just 
just very yeast driven, uh, but you can control them to. I think I, I think I can control them slightly, um, but maybe not. I don't know. Anyone else want to add to that about the the barrel and controlling the? Have you have you, have you had um, experience in that, Nick? A very small amount of experience with the barrel aging. I do play around with yeast a fair bit, um, and I love yeast characteristics like yourself. But it is like trying to herd a cat sometimes. Um, you've got to really know the yeast and you've got to really um, control every other situation, every other ingredient around the outside of it and even down to temperature, um, the vessel size. So it is really um, anecdotal to control. Your, like, like you said, if you've got your own bugs that you know really well and you've got your own yeast that you know really well. Um, and that's a lot of fun, brewing with different yeasts and brett and bacteria is a lot of fun to uh, trying to get the beer out at the end. Um, I wasn't thinking about that at all. I was, I was kind of, <laughs> that's why when you, when you called on me, I was blank face. <laughs> I, I was thinking about the difference that 5% makes in a pale ale. Because... As in 5% of, of ingredients? 5% yeah. of ingredients in a pale ale because... I, I love brewing funky, wild, crazy beers and throwing in silly ingredients. Um, that's a whole bunch of fun. But I also love drinking just the perfect pale ale in the sun and having a pint of it. And I think, back to your original question with the, how much does that 5% make a difference? I think it makes a huge difference um, to get that perfect balance of a beer. A recipe on a piece of paper from one brewer to another brewer to another brewer, that 5% doesn't mean very much. It's really anecdotal, very similar to the yeast. It's anecdotal. You've got to know your brew house and you've got to know your ingredients um, and you can just nail down that recipe. doesn't happen overnight. but So that, that seems crazy and it's something I, I noted down. Um, if 5%, if, if that doesn't mean anything to brewers kind of a thing and, and you have to know your brew house, there are a lot of little things that, happen that people might not realize um mash temperature um ferulic rest was another one i don't know if i say that right but i came across that the other day and it's the first time i ever heard about it um like what are some of those little bits and pieces that you guys spring to mind that that you know homebrewers wouldn't even realize that pro brewers are, are really doing is there anything that jumps to mind water chemistry like Wa- sort of water you know yep. sort of chloride sulfates all these you know that's Water has a really, and it's exactly that. It's a recipe on a piece of paper. At the end of the day, is that there's there's three or four other things at least that will come into play to de- to help determine whether that five percent actually does shine through or not, or whether you can notice it or whether it adds helps or not. You know, there's yeah. It's yeah. So going on to water, this beer that we're drinking now, the Aperol Spritz. I want it to be le- really lean and minerally, like a prosecco. Uh, so I up the sulfates in the water to give it that really clean, lean finish. And I've just noticed quite a minerally finish on it now. Mm. Um, when you mentioned that, I forgot that I'd, <laughs> that I'd done that to the water chemistry. <laughs> well done, Nick. You'd, uh, <laughs> you've nailed that recipe. <laughs> uh, a little pat on the back for myself. Well done. Um, I, I think for me, it's probably consistency. If you're not doing the same thing over and over again when you get different results you can't be surprised 
if you can at least start doing the exact same thing over and over again and be like, cool, well, I got distracted by Dr. Phil. Mash rest went for 95 minutes. Okay, cool. Um, How about I fix that? What what's mash rest like as in terms of what is that? Well, so for the brewery I work on, I get one shot at converting flour into sugar, and that's at roughly sixty six to sixty eight, actually up to seventy two degrees. So, if I let that proceed far beyond that, if I get distracted by cleaning a tank or Doctor Phil, Doctor Phil, or some dickhead rocks up and is like, oh, "I got twenty pelts of bottles for you," awesome. There's the forklift. Uh, that's uh, an error in my consistency of process. So mm. something I'm really trying to nail is these things happen at this point every time. If I get that down, then I can go back and look at my recipe and say, okay, so I'm doing everything when it should be done or at least I'm doing everything at the same time every time. What am I doing wrong with regard to whatever recipe additions I'm making? Once I've got the recipe down... I go back to my process and say, okay, so what am I doing with my process? And it, it's it's a never-ending, it's a Sisyphean task brewing beer because you just wind up going back to the other thing and be like, all right, I'm fucking this up, change that. It's why after X many thousands of years, we don't have the perfect beer yet. So yeah, I like that. I like the keep it simple attitude. Um, and then everything else, all the complicated things that you just talked about, Luke, there are, I, I see them as just tools in the tool belt to accentuate different aspects of a beer. Once you've got your base beer down, those little tools, I want this to come forward a bit. And so you go back to those little tools and you, I want a little more clovey character in my saison. So you go and put a ferulic acid rest in. What, what is that, by the way? I don't know the uh, word. It's a, <laughs> like a 48 degree rest, which provides ferulic acid um, which some yeasts will convert into the clove compound. Yeah. So it's uh, mostly used in wheat beers or wheat-based beers? Wheat beers, saisons. Um, The Germans, I think, used to use it to acidify maybe and to help with processing when you had really shit malt. Okay. Um, I think it helped, Uh, but don't quote me on that. Don't, don't record that. <laughs> <laughs> um, coming back to something you said really early on was about um, ingredients, you know, coriander, and you mentioned shit malt there uh, now, Nick. It's how important are the quality of the ingredients overall? You know, getting good grain and hops doesn't matter. Anyone? Yeah, hugely. And touching on malt, I know I uh, had a situation where um, uh, without paying attention to the malt analysis and from one harvest to the next uh, we were using a certain type of um, locally malted uh, malt that uh, we were having issues with the with the pH runnings as we we're running over to the kettle uh, pH was rocketing up and we were having to cut the runnings too short now efficiency is one factor with that but there are other considerations um, that uh, that you can have if there is issues with with the with the um, pH and it was after going around and around in circles and then just simply just had a look at the malt analysis sheet and saw that the actual wort pH for that, for that batch of malt was actually um, higher, 0.2, 0.3 higher than what previous uh, batches of that malt um, had been. And um, 
they're just another one of those uh, extra parameters that sort of ingredient quality is is of paramount, but also to every one of the key ingredients in brewing, the sort of the more that you brew, the more that you realise they are of equal importance and that, you know, sort of when I started out as a home brewer, you know, hops was the ingredient that you just got obsessed with and just malt. And uh, I, I remember somebody telling me when I first started brewing, it was like, malt's just sugar. It's just sugar, you know. So I was like, oh, okay, that's just the sugar. Well, you know, let's get out, let's get down to the cool ingredients. But as you start to investigate further, you know, malt, water, obviously hops and yeast, you know, can be very expressive. But, yeah, you know, sort of uh, malt is uh, sort of underrated a lot of the times and oh, often totally. yeah, yeah. not even thought about. You just get a bag of this, chuck yeah, it in and you get this gravity done. People you know? putting out some muddy fucking beer that looks like shit and it's a New England IPA. Mm. So malt, malt is just fucked off. <laughs> now it's just, can I jam more hops into this piece of shit? Mm. So do you guys, when you're, imitate, when you're designing a beer and you're taking uh, inspiration from another beer or just a beer imitation. from history? You wanted to say imitation. I did want to say imitate. <laughs> when, you're, when you're designing a beer and you're taking inspiration from uh, a traditional beer or a beer style, do you look to that country, that origin for raw materials? Or do you try and use what you've got around you? I do. I, I do. I, I've sort of I've uh, home brewing and also in a um, professional brewery. Um, I've brewed pilsners using a local pilsner malt, or lo- uh, or using I should say a continental pilsner malt. And yeah, you know you can't argue with hundreds of years of brewing tradition or you know and there is something to it so absolutely you know sort of when i was home brewing it was always whether it was an american ipa or a belgian style saison i would use you know the relevant ingredients and trial and error um there are some things which you can sort of cross over and substitute um and we're strictly talking about malt here but um there is absolutely I, st- I still sort of turn to uh continental pilsner malts for a certain flavor when it comes to a certain style of beer that's yeah yeah i think um if if i'm setting out to make a uh, if in my job most specifically uh, a base style of beer and then fuck up through whatever means i will approach it in the way that it is approached in that country so uh like you said, West Coast IPA, I will um, add minerals to the water. We're lucky here in Melbourne that we can more or less do whatever we need to to make uh, our water profile what it is. Why is that? Because it's fucking almost completely devoid of anything by the time it gets to Moondog at least. So you're saying, it saying, temperature, there's, you're saying there's not many minerals in the water? No. How do you know that? Like, How do you find that out? Uh, just contact your local water supplier, in our case, Yarra Valley Water. Cool. Um, and they send you a, a spec do, sheet. Do they get homebrewers just fucking oh, dude, annoying the shit out of them? They must be sick to fucking death of homebrewers. No, no, I want the in-depth fucking spec <laughs> sheet. Okay. So, yeah, Melbourne water is delicious. It tastes really nice, but it's mm. also, um, yeah, devoid. Re- remarkably consistent and yeah. very soft yeah. Yeah. and lacking in minerals. So. Yeah. so, soft is something you hear a lot about. Um, what beers are suited to a soft water profile versus beers to a hard water Jesus profile? Jesus Christ, this is far beyond my pace. Okay, anyone else? <laughs> uh, Pilsners and 
yeah, where hard water is, is more of your like Burton on train uh, IPAs and mm-hmm. things like that. Yep. It's actually it's it would be more preferable for it, it, it's it's good that we've got soft water because it's very neutral and it's easy to build yep. flavor profiles on it. It's harder to go the other way and in you know sort of in the northern hemisphere and um, uh, like in the states and stuff where they have hard water and where they have to actually demineralize the water to be able to brew you know other styles of beer other than you know, sort of hop forward, hoppy beers and things like that. That's my understanding. Yep, I've just actually written a water article for the Crafty Pine. Right. So I'm a little What's the website for that? Uh, (laughs) That'd be craftypint.com. When's that coming out? Uh, James? Yeah, yeah, James, (laughs) I know you're listening. Tell us. Um, So yeah, you're right. Pilsner's neutral water profile. And we're lucky we have very similar water profile. And what, yeah, we can add whatever minerals to imitate like you say, Burton on Trent, where pale ales come from, where you add in lots of sulfates, sulfates. Yep. Uh, which accentuate hop flavours. Um, whereas London and Dublin, it's quite hard water, uh, lots of carbonates in there. Um, and that's why when they use dark malt, it actually makes the beer taste better because it counteracts those, the dark malt, the roasted malts counteracts the carbonates in the water and it makes the beer taste more delicious. So over time, where water, uh, where the base materials in an area, such as water, uh, have a specific characteristic, they will start to brew beers that prefer that style of water. So in terms of historically, water has led recipe development more than anything else, do we think? Is that a fair thing to say? That's my vote. Yep. Yeah. Everyone's nodding, which is kind of interesting. Yep. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. You can read the article. Tell me if I'm right. <laughs> Shame, shameless plug. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, Should we grab another beer? Sorry. Yeah, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and I've got a couple more questions and I think we're going to wrap up. Cool. IPA has just been poured into our glass. Adrian, tell us what a brute IPA is. I uh, think everyone knows, but tell us anyway. So, to the best of my knowledge, a brute IPA is essentially something that's ultra hoppy. Um, business is way back, uh, but with absolutely zero fucking malt character whatsoever. Uh, the less malt body, the better. I was really hoping this particular beer would drop below uh, the specific gravity of water. Mm. We didn't quite get there. We got close. Um, And to be honest, of the most recent beer fads, which I consider this to be the most recent and before this New England's. You haven't heard about. This is clearly my favourite. So, yeah, ultra hoppy, no malt. I think in the States they were modestly high alcohol, maybe 5 6%. Um, but I mean, we had to moondog it, so we. I, I get paid to do this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had to fuck it up. Um, so, can you put 
anything, like this is using an enzyme which is used in, say, your pure blondes, your low-carb beers. Yep. Is that cool? Can you do that? Yeah, I don't give a shit. Um, what about you guys? Do you care? Anyone about putting that kind of thing in beer? I actually agree um, with what you're saying just then. In, in terms of new styles of beer, I love Brute IPAs because for me it goes straight to what I, as a beer drinker, have been been drawn to more and more You know, over the last couple of years, dry and drinkability. I love dry beers. So Do you think wicked. this is a side effect of getting old or is this a development that is increasingly pleasing? And I ask that in a genuine, very genuine sense because I, I really find New England IPAs to be absolutely repellent. They look horrendous. Their taste is just barbaric. But Bruce IPAs really appeal to me, just the, the, the purity of their goal. I think it's just the it's just it's like it's just a really well made dry IPA. Yeah, that's why yeah. I like them. Yeah, because it's like maybe if a brewery can't really make one of those, they just maybe throw some enzyme in there and hey, you're there. Yeah, yep. <laughs> um, I don't really know much about them. But would you guys make one at Future Mountain? Uh, we'd maybe use the enzyme, but no, we w- mm. probably wouldn't make a. Um, would you use not, the, yeah. How would you use the enzyme? Uh, just in other beers to maybe dry them out. To but dry I them mean, out. We, we were talking yeah. today about uh, maybe doing um, uh, like a lager uh, with us. Because my understanding is the, the enzyme, it kind of uh, uh, retains the malt character in the beer to some degree. I think it depends on which of the enzyme varieties oh, okay. you use. Yep. Okay. okay. Um, but I, yeah, I like the idea if you, if you can maintain some malt character um, and then but dry, dry it out, then that's pretty cool. I love that. See, I like when people aren't precious about what they put in beer. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a tool belt. And to achieve a delicious beer at the end of the day, who cares what you do to get there? Uh, it's like when people get stuck up on lagers or ales or whatever. It doesn't matter how you get to the final beer. If you want it to taste like this, use whatever you can. An enzyme if you need to, a lager yeast if you need to, an ale yeast, brett, bacteria, Whatever you need to do to get to that final delicious flavor that you want, do it. Who cares? A beer's great like that. We're allowed to. It's kind of what um, Belgium has been doing for years, right? Centuries. Just do whatever. So, so what you're saying to the Look people... the Belgians. They rule. Yeah. So what you're saying to our listeners is, I don't know, just put whatever you can till it, till it works. Caviar, if, if, it, if it's literally not going to kill you, fucking give it a crack. Um. <laughs> One thing and if it is, just don't drink too much of it. <laughs> <laughs> just have a little sip. Yeah. <laughs> One thing, and we kind of touched on it before, but it's something that really annoys me is this is kind of, I always see it in, in writing and new breweries that starting up and they say, you know, we didn't want to just make a beer and throw hops at it till it tasted good. Um, which I think is so disrespectful to say beers like this, which I, I really enjoy, or, you know, your, your American breweries, which make amazingly, amazingly delicate beers with loads of hops. Um, but can you just throw hops at a, a pale ale and make it better? No. If, if your base beer is shit, you're fucked. And right from the get-go, there's nothing... If you've got a fermentation issue or you've got a malt balance issue or there's fatty acids, that, you know, there's a million things that can go wrong and then you can just throw all the hops in the world at it. Unless you're going to produce a literal pint of beer from, say, 3,000 litres you're probably not going to be able to cover up the shit that's gone before. 
Anyone disagree? No, you, you no, just make agree. a pretty crappy beer. A little bit, tiny bit hoppier. <laughs> <laughs> More expensive. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Actually, no, yeah, it's just going to get infinitely worse because now you can only sell like one pint of beer for $7,000 to mm. cover your hop fucking mm. bill. That's right. Um, anything that we haven't covered that anyone wanted to mention about developing a beer? Designing a beer? We didn't talk about yeast, actually. and I think yeast, um, I guess, is kind of a mystery to a lot of people. How do you select a yeast to, to, to use in a beer? You know, there are yeast, yeast is literally landing on us as we speak. How do I make that beer and know that it's going to be good? Or how do I buy yeast and know that it's going to be good? How long do you want this podcast to go for? <laughs> what a question to get, ask at the end. Yeah, I know, right? Get, get, just give us the summary. The, the quick, I'll keep you on track. Future Mountain Boys, uh, you guys play with yeah, yeast. How, how That's you, your thing. How are you guys selecting your yeast for Future Mountain? Um, we are using some lab cultures that we have used uh, uh, homebrewing. Um, and we are just, uh, we're doing some like isolates from bottle um, dregs. So isolating a Brett strain um, uh, from that and, you, and growing that up and see it. We're basically just growing things up from bottle dregs, isolating some things, maybe um, uh, taking a flower or something and, and growing that up. Um, and just uh, growing them up to to a point where you can drink them and uh, and, this is, and just just see how they taste, and go forward from there if they're good and dump the ones that aren't and just keep evolving like that. Yeah. So you're selecting very much like brewers have selected yeast for the last thousand years. Very nice. I like the idea of doing that. Like that's the interesting thing for us. Um, instead of just buying a, a lab culture, which um, which is is great, and and we 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 do that. But um, it's way more interesting to try and come up with something and blend some yeast and experiment. Mm. And I think too is sort of um, where, as a home brewer, uh, up until a couple of years ago, you had uh, white labs and Y yeast as sort of a yeast commercial yeast resource. Uh, there's a lot of other places now: the Yeast Bay, um, Omega, um, a whole bunch of other ones uh, around the world. That you some you can get here in Australia, but ultimately there's there's these uh, small yeast propagating labs that are starting up that are basically just following on from where White Labs and Y Yeast sort of uh, uh, had it, and they're just isolating it from uh, some of them are, are wild captures, um, some of them are propagating bottle dregs from you know famous breweries and things like that. So it's it, it sort of as a home brewer and also as a commercial brewer, there's so many more uh, options afforded to you now. And that was something that uh, what we were saying before about malt as well. There's more maltsters coming on board that, that uh, there's some really interesting cracking ingredients that you don't uh, – sometimes you can quite easily get distracted with all these other, um, other additions. But whilst, you know, the, the key ingredients um, going into beer, there's – so many more producers um, coming out with really interesting, in this case, like isolates of yeasts and blends of yeasts and things like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of option out there now with yeast, which is good. You know? Is there a resource that everyone or you guys love to go to if you want to find something out? Because there's so much information out there and you, it, you've all mentioned so many things. Uh, um, for me, uh, I would just say the internet. Okay, and the internet. Just Google. Just wait, yeah. wait a minute. Where do I find the internet? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's on a computer. Computer these days. Um, it does take a little bit to sort the wheat from the chaff. 
Um, uh, Pro Brewer for me, in a broad sense, is usually pretty good. What's Pro Brewer? Is it a website? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, so the the forums in particular. Um, actually, I only look at the forums. I can't speak to the rest of the website. Um, if I'm doing something brand new that I've never even heard of, I will tend to start there, see where other people are fucked up and try and learn from their mistakes. Almost never happens. I have to make that mistake myself, but I'm not making the exact same mistake. I'm fucking up in a different way. <laughs> Anyone else have a resource for us? I like to go back to first principles a lot because I, uh, I studied science. I studied uh, chemistry at university. Fancy uh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's always back to like how do things work at the very basic level. Not physics, but it's one step up from physics. You're just looking at atoms going, yeah. Pretty atoms. much. <laughs> pretty much. That's, and so that's where my, that's where I learned how to learn. So I, uh, I like a, a series of books. They're called Malt and they're called Hops and they're called Yeast and they're called Water. And it's a, a reasonable dive into each of those, uh, each of those ingredients, but still at a very understandable level. Um, those books are great. Uh, once you've got a grasp of the core concepts in there, you can manipulate them. I just lo- I love buying books. I love brewing books. There's lots and lots of brewing books written by people who have been uh, brewing for a long time. And I think what we've come up with today, one of the takeaways is that brewing's very anecdotal. So to read books written by people who have been brewing by, for 50 years and take their mistakes, like Adrian's just said, um, and not make the same mistakes. That's gold for me. You guys have anything that you always turn to? Yeah, Google. Okay. Um, but but it's that, um, can I find that on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the um, the uh, Brewers Association publications, which is what that there's, they've got. Totally. they've got great books that cover cer- uh, certain styles of beer as well as the uh, brewing elements and things like that. Um, and yeah, pro brewer. It's I yeah I often find myself looking to the states and whether it's you know uh, online resources publications or whatever you know those guys they they're able they do that blend of the science and the experimentation so well and the trial and error and i just yeah that's usually where i first look and i, I, I just to expand upon that uh probably my second resource is other brewers if i know someone who's attempted something or is even in that realm I'll hit them and say you bought 10 kilos of blue food dye number two how did that work for you awesome that is not the ingredient I anticipated you saying yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. who else who else had bought 10 kilos of blue food dye number two (laughs) look I've got some so I'm having at least one other person so I mean I guess it's interesting you know we're talking about I guess this this whole series is ultimately how to start a brewery or, or what goes into start a brewery and the complexity for a lot of people we think of, I guess to me, is buying the equipment, buying the space, which, you know, we're going to cover all those things, but the actual beer itself is, is just infinitely complex. Um, but I guess engaging with the community so you know where to get a, what, 10 kilo of blue food dye. Yeah, totally. I, I think if, you, if you're looking to enter this industry and you're not willing to be part of the community you are basically shooting yourself in the foot right off the bat. Um, we're all brewers. 
with some of the friendliest motherfuckers on the face of the earth with loses, you know, reasonably loose people. <laughs> I, I, I can think of a euphemism there that would be uh, more than a four-letter word, but it's, it's such a friendly and welcoming bunch of people. Um, if you're, say, setting up a brewery next to Nick here, hit him on the shoulder and say, fuck, man, I just drilled through to, I don't know, bedrock. Can you help me out? What would you do here? And he'd be like, well, my chemistry background says you're fucked and <laughs> um, you should just back out of this lease. L- likewise, if you ever want to add caviar to a beer, give Adrian a call. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you not to. Or I can sell you some caviar. <laughs> Out of date. <laughs> that's still fine. Um, I reckon that's a pretty nice spot to uh, finish up. Um, Future Mountain, where can we find information? Do you have anything online yet? Um, social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we've got a basic website that is still a work in progress. Cool. Um, but uh, sort of things are speeding up as we come towards the end of the year and sort of coming into next year we're hoping to be brewing by about sort of early to mid-december um and sort of looking at having some beers out early next year start of uh, 2019 so atl just <coughs> said yes to us so we're good we're good to go there Ta- tax man says yes yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, tax yeah, man course, says we've got a business yeah, yeah. congratulations yeah. <laughs> do we have an episode on tax lined up nick Absolutely, it's a double, the oh double episode. God. I'm bored already. <laughs> Surely that's not just a whole fucking series unto itself. Uh, all right, I think everyone knows where to find Moondog. Um, your bosses have been on the show before, so maybe I'll link to them somewhere. Uh, and everyone knows where to Add find their Molly their personal Ritz. Facebook pages. They love that shit. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, Nick, anything you want to add before we wrap up? Oh, I want to thank these guys for coming along. Uh, Future Thanks Martins. for having us. That's awesome. Yeah, Shane yeah, and Ian. Adrian. Moondog, thank you very much, guys. It was good fun. Yeah, I, I learned so much. Um, I'm actually looking forward to editing this, which I've never said before because it's going to be interesting to listen back. Oh, good. <laughs> um, well, that's the reason I wanted this episode to happen is so I could learn from a whole bunch of other people. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Same, yeah. That's where we came. Um, I, I just came because I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> You're drunken in the neighbourhood. There was some free beer. <laughs> now, I think what we're going to do is... Um, Finish this one, but we're going to do a little bonus uh, where we design a pale ale on mic and then release this as a bonus episode at some point, um, probably to coincide with the launch of Molly Rose or, or thereabouts. So are you shaking your head? No? No, no, no. We're going to release this beer as soon as it's ready. Oh, sick. All right. Yeah. I thought we were going to brew it a bit. Okay, whatever. We can discuss this later on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. no, this, this will happen soon. Cool. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned awesome. for the bonus content um, and we're going to uh, we're gonna make a pale ale. The most easy beer to make, right? Sure. Why not? (laughs) Thanks, everyone.